Today we'll mainly be in uh, working through sections of 1 Corinthians 7. Um, there will be in other areas as well. I don't have the passages uh, displayed on the screen, so if, if you don't have your scripture with you, if you don't have your Bible with you, we do have them underneath the chairs. Um, so, unfortunately, we do have to find a way to remedy that situation on the front chairs as well. So. Um, but we'll be mainly in 1 Corinthians 7. So if you want to follow along, um, I will reference the chapters and verses so that you can jump into there as well. Um, so I'm sorry that we don't have them for the screen today. I might be taking many swigs of water um, all throughout this morning. Just keep it what? Keep it down. Keep it down? <laughs> That's the goal, buddy. That is the goal. Well, there is a great danger doing a series on the family. There truly is. I mean, especially when you focus fairly heavily on marriage, which the majority of our messages over these last few weeks have been focused on marriage. In fact, we did three, uh, three messages directly in a row that all had to do specifically with the institution of marriage. And so the danger of doing a series on the family and our marriage is this, that while we might not actively be trying to do so, we're going to put too much focus on marriage, on having children, and etc. And then what we can do is create the illusion that a good Christian life ultimately is wrapped around marriage. See, that's, that's the danger. That's the, if you will, that's the, 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 the struggle with doing a theme-focused series, right? Um, although I, I believe, and, and I think that we've demonstrated over the last few weeks, that marriage is essential and important and vital in the economy of God's plan for humanity and for even the church itself. Um, we can put an over-emphasized, I don't know, explicitness on it. We can and that will end up distorting our understanding of what Christianity is and what our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because then what we get in our mindset is that we really can't live up to our relationship with Jesus unless we have a relationship with a spouse. Right? That's the, that's the temptation. That's the mindset that we can get into. Um, and you want to know how I can prove this? Let me, let me ask you this simple question. How many single pastors do you know? How many single pastors do you know? Or have you known? Not that many. I mean, even as I think about it, I know a lot of pastors. There was one guy, one guy I know who was single, but he was engaged when he took the pastorate position. So he was getting married like three and a half months later after he took the pastorate position. I mean, even when you think about like teen pastors, discipleship pastors, executive pastors, sometimes people who are very young and early, still going through seminary, not even in seminary yet, they still are married usually with kids or expecting to have kids on the way. Well, why is that? Why is it that we don't see many single pastors? Because I think that the church has subconsciously, or maybe even consciously for that matter, we see single men as less than married men. That's why. So, for instance, if we were to turn to 1 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verse 2, we read this verse. 
This verse says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, that little phrase right there in 1 Timothy 3.2, the husband of one wife, has been taken by many churches, by many denominations, and has been used to say that if someone wants to be a pastor, if someone wants to be an elder, if someone wants to be a preacher and a teacher, then they must be married. They've taken that one little phrase, which actually in the original language says a one-woman man. That's the literal way of reading that. It says a one-woman man. And yet churches will take that and they'll say, well, we cannot hire someone. We cannot call someone or bring someone on unless they are married. They must be married or else they can't be a pastor. And then they use this to justify that position that they take. When in reality, that's not what the verse is talking about at all. Like I said, that this passage is saying that the elder must be a one-woman man, which means that someone who's going to be a pastor cannot be polygamous, which was something that happened back in that day, cannot be an adulterer, and cannot be someone who's divorcing and remarrying after they come to know Christ. That's the actual way to interpret that passage. But why do we get in this mindset as churches? where we see single men as less than married men. And it's not just single men and married men, but it's single women and married women, right? In fact, there was this really popular book. Well, I don't know how popular it was, but it was pretty influential. It came out in 2004. It was written by um, uh, uh, Debbie, uh, Debbie Macon was her name. The, the name of the book was called Serious About Marriage, Rethinking the Gift of Singleness. And in this book, she advocated that single women in their mid to late 20s, they should take radical steps in moving towards marriage, meaning that they need to stop thinking about singleness as a gift, which is interesting because as we're going to prove singleness is a gift. But she says that women have to stop thinking that way, and they need to, if they have to, they need to leave work, they need to move back in with their parents, and they have to ask their parents, especially their fathers, to ask them to find a suitable husband for them. That's what women in the church should be doing, ought to be doing. So, as much as I hope we put a great spotlight on marriage during this series, I want us to be cautioned of having a twisted and distorted understanding of marriage as though somehow marriage is a greater level of our relationship with Jesus. That if we're married, we're somehow better Christians, super Christians, or at least one level above the other Christians, and then therefore we have all of the rights and privileges and responsibilities that we can have as married people and single people. They're, they're kind of on a lesser caste status within the church. I think that's a really important thing for a church to wrestle with while holding up the sanctity and the value and the high honor of marriage on the one hand, doing the same with singleness. Can a church do both? I think if we follow the text of scriptures, we can. Because that's what the scriptures do. The scriptures teach that marriage is good and holy and wonderful and a gracious gift from God given to people to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. And singleness is a good, holy, honorable calling and gift that some people are gifted with and called to to be able to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. They both exist. They both exist. One is not better than the other. They are both wonderful gifts in, uh, given by God. <laughs> so let's look at what the Scriptures teach here. 
The first thing that I want to say is singleness was not always considered to be a gift. Singleness, in fact, under the Old Covenant was considered to be a curse. So under the Old Testament, such an, there was such an important emphasis placed on offspring and that to have offspring, you had to be married. So therefore, a widow with no offspring to carry on the family heritage was both disgraceful and pitiable under the Old Covenant. That's why the book of Ruth stands out, right? Because the book of Ruth, what's the whole book about? It's about a widow who has no children, and the greatest thing that she can receive is the gift of a husband, right? That's what the entire book of Ruth is. Now, if the book of Ruth wanted to end in a tragic way, or if it was to end on a tragic way, were to end on a tragic way, it would be ending with her never finding a husband. And that would be considered so tragic and terrible for her. And it's not just Ruth. I mean, we can look at the fact that women who were barren, uh, women who couldn't procreate, women who weren't able to have a husband were always viewed in this pitiable, sometimes cursed light in the Old Covenant. It wasn't just widows and, and women who weren't married, but it was also eunuchs as well. Men who were made into eunuchs. They were precluded from congregational worship with the people of Israel. You see that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. They were also not allowed to participate as priests, even if they were part of the Levitical tribe, which was the priestly tribe. Single persons without offsprings, whether men or women, were ostracized, were left out were oftentimes considered to be, as mentioned, cursed by God for some kind of unfaithfulness on their part. Now, why is that in the Old Covenant? Why? Because the Old Covenant is totally and completely centered on the promised seed of Abraham. Right? The Old Covenant is built upon the promise that God made to Abraham that from you shall come many descendants that will fill the earth. Right? That's, that's the whole emphasis on the promise to Abraham. And then even when that promise becomes developed further down the line, the promise is still about an offspring. It's still about a descendant. And so when we come to David, what's the promise given to David? Not that David, you are the final promised one to come under the plan of God's covenant relationship with Abraham. But from you, David, will come another offspring who will reign forever over the house of Israel whose throne will always exist, right? So, the covenant of the Old Testament is always future-oriented. We get that? The covenant promises of the Old Testament are always about the future, the one who is to come to rule, the, the descendants who are to come to fill the earth. And so, if you wanted to be a covenant-faithful individual under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, if you wanted to be able to fulfill your calling, it required that you procreate. That was part of the requirement of carrying out Old Covenant faithfulness. But then, as we turn to the New Testament, we see a radical shift in the view of singleness, of widowhood, of infertility, etc., down and down the line. We see that singleness becomes, in fact, a calling Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 through 12. Let me read those for you, because these are the words of Jesus himself. He says this. He says, But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. 
So what's Jesus talking about here? Well, first and foremost, he has just given an, a, a, a very detailed instruction to the disciples about marriage, right? So verses 19, I mean, chapter 19, verses 3 through 9 is a, a very explicit teaching that Jesus gives to the disciples about marriage. And what he says there is that husbands and wives are to be a one flesh union for their lives and that no one's supposed to break it up. So that's what he says there in verses 3 through 6, that marriage has this, again, this high calling of marriage, right? So the high calling of marriage is that one man, one woman, covenantally united by God for life, let no one break that marriage up, including both the husband and the wife, including the state, including anyone. Let no one dissolve that union because God is the one who's brought that union together. So he gives this really high view calling of marriage, his high teaching of marriage. And then in verse 10, the disciples respond by saying to him, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it's better not to marry. So the disciples say, that's such a high view that you have, Jesus. I would prefer not to even get married if that's the case. And Jesus doesn't soften his teaching what he does is he digs into the fact that singleness is a calling too. See, that's what he ends up doing there by explaining about these eunuchs. He says, yes, you're right, essentially. Not everyone is called to marriage. When they hear these high words of Jesus, that if you're going to find a wife, you're going to find a husband, you are going to commit and make your vows to them, you really are making that vow until the day that you die. For better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's the Christian view. That's Jesus' view of marriage. And so when we hear that, we say, if, if you're one of the people, like the disciples, that says, wow, I don't know if I can make that kind of a commitment. Jesus is saying, okay, not everybody can. Notice he says that for, for every, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So Jesus is affirming there in verse 11 that marriage is a gift given to certain people. Marriage is a gift that is given to people who can receive these teachings that he has given to us. But then in verse 12, he picks this up. Notice at the end of verse 12, he says, let the one who's able to receive this, talking about eunuchs, he says, receive it. So what's that? That's the same exact language that Jesus uses about marriage. So what's Jesus doing here? He's saying, once again, that marriage is a calling and singleness is a calling. Marriage is a gift that is given to be lived out. Singleness is a gift that is given to be lived out. That's amazing when you consider what Jesus is coming out of. 2,000 years of marriage and offspring being the basic necessity of carrying out God's calling. 2,000 years of it. Can you just imagine? We talk about the countercultural Jesus often, right? We talk about how... He includes women in his ministry, and they follow him around with a larger group of disciples, and, right? So he's countercultural in that way and in so many other ways. We don't have to go down the list right now. This is a, such a countercultural teaching in his day. Jesus is saying, yes, for 2,000 years, you have been hearing and rightly hearing that it is so important to have children, to be married, to have families, to multiply your genetic material. <laughs> but now... Something different has come. There's a different type of kingdom. Because notice what he says there at the end of it. He says, for the sake of the kingdom, or I should say, at the end of verse 12, or midway through, it says, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for what? The sake of the kingdom of heaven. So it's an actual missional call to be single. 
that some people have in their lives. That's an amazing confirmation of the gift of singleness from the mouth of Jesus Himself. Of course, that makes sense, right? Because if Jesus is the perfect man and the perfect proclaimer of the kingdom, the perfect priest, the perfect pastor, the perfect king, Jesus is the perfect shepherd over His people's souls, He was never married. (laughs) Right? Like, that's incredible to think of right there. Singleness is affirmed as a good gospel kingdom calling by the Son of God. So, there's this radical transition that takes place between the Old and the New Covenants. And the reason why is because the kingdom changes and morphs with the coming of Jesus. So, the kingdom in the Old Covenant was all about announcing the King to come. And now, the kingdom announcement is that the King has come. The King has been born into this earth. The King has established His rule and His reign. And He's continuing to establish that until the day when He finally returns and establishes it on earth. But the King has already come. Even though the full kingdom of God isn't fully here, the King has fully and totally come. And so, do you see, that's the, that's the transition. So under the Old Covenant, the reason why being married and having offspring was so important is because there was an awaiting. There was a, a time. There was a, a period where we were sitting there and saying, well, I don't know who this offspring is. Who is the seed of Abraham? Who is the seed of David? Who is the seed of Adam and Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent? Who is this one who is to come? This is what Advent is all about. And then, when the king does finally come, the kingdom changes. It morphs. It's different now. Because we're not waiting any longer for the king to show himself. We're not waiting for the seed to come and reveal who he is yet. We know who that is, and that's Jesus. And so, therefore, the kingdom isn't built by having children. Right? The kingdom isn't built by multiplying our genetic material and DNA. That's not how the kingdom is built anymore. The kingdom is built through spiritual discipleship, spiritual awakening, by having the hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh, and people come into the kingdom by, by pay, placing their faith in the king. So now, Paul continues this exact line of thought, and he does so in 1 Corinthians 7. I told you we were going to get there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he continues to build upon this theme. So, Like we said, Jesus said that singleness is a calling and a gift, and Paul hones in on what that gift looks like. He says this starting in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. He says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what does Paul say? First of all, it starts in verse 6. He says, now as a concession, not a command. Such an important verse right there. Because Paul is saying that I'm I'm, I'm giving what I think is a good recommendation. I think I'm giving solid advice here, but he specifically says I'm not giving this as a command to people who are not married, who are single, or who are widows and and single, right? So he's saying, quite point blank, that this is something that I want you to take into consideration. I strongly urge you to think about, and what's really cool about this is it's individualizing it 
on a one-on-one basis. Paul's doing that through his very language here, right? So that's so vitally important because while we today in the church, right, in the contemporary church, in the Protestant church especially, especially in Baptist churches, we might glorify marriage and put that on a pedestal over and above singleness, that wasn't the case for the vast majority of church history. The vast majority of church history said that marriage was second and singleness was to be put on a pedestal, right? That's why in the Roman Catholic tradition, priests can't marry. That was uh, confirmed in about 1100 or something like that AD, but it was started to be practiced about 400 AD, right? So it was commanded starting in 1100 that if you're gonna be a priest, you can't get married. And about 400, that was strongly urged and recommended. And in fact, the vast majority of people who wanted to go into ministry wouldn't um, become higher ranking bishops and whatnot if they were married and had families. Only the single people would. Why? Because it was considered to be more holy if you stayed single, because you could be more devoted to God. You'd be more devoted to your work for God. And because there was a, there was a distorted view on sex that developed during the Middle Ages too where they thought that it was just kind of like this unholy, necessary thing. So I don't want to go into the whole history of that. But the point is, like, right here, Paul says in verse 6, that you can't develop a theology like that. You also can't develop a theology that singleness is something that is greater or better than marriage, right? Because this is a concession, not a command. And he says in verse 7, using himself as an example, he says, I wish that, I wish that, I desire that you could all be like I am. Right? He's saying, I'm single, I'm able to do ministry, I'm able to fulfill this kind of calling that Jesus has placed on my life, and it's been wonderful for me. It's been wonderful for the work that God has for me. And you can see that just by reading through the book of Acts. Just think this, when, when you're reading through the book of Acts, and, and you see Paul making all of these journeys, like bobbing and weaving all throughout the Roman Empire, just think if he had like a wife and family at home. He wouldn't be able to do that. He really wouldn't. I mean, he would have totally abandoned his wife and family to be able to do the missionary calling that he did. And Paul says later on in, in the pastoral epistles that a husband and father needs to provide for his family if he wants to be in ministry. And so, right, that would be contradicting the very things that he said. So the, the beauty is Paul saying, like, I have this ministry opportunity, I have these missions, and I have this wonderful calling and gift of singleness that lets me carry that out. I wish that you could all be like I am. But then he says, but I know that each one has their own gift from God. One of, of one kind and one of another. So Paul is just saying right there, like, but I know you're not all like me. I know you don't all have the gift of singleness. I wish that you did, but I know you don't. So therefore, go ahead and get married if that's the calling. Remain single if you can. That's a good thing. It's a good gift. It'll free you up for ministry and for mission. But if you can't, if you find that you are not able to, verse 9, this is a very important verse, if you find that you are not able to exercise self-control, then you should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, the reason I said this verse is very important is because I was once at a, um, at a, I don't know, it was, it was like a singles and dating sort of roundtable discussion, right? So it's a bunch of, um, funny. I, honestly, so this is before I met Lana, so I went to it because I was hoping to find, you know, a girl or something like that. It was early in my, my Christian life, right? And so, you know, I just have to make that, that confession before you all right now. Yes, I went to the Christians and dating thing to see if I could find a Christian to date. That was what I was looking at doing. Um, but in the roundtable discussion, 
as, as they're talking, I remember um, a good four or five people um, saying that even though they had this strong desire for marriage, they were going to sacrifice it on the altar of missions. That was, that was one thing. Like four or five people said that. Even though I have this strong urge and desire to be married, I really want to find a spouse. It's part of my heart. It's part of my desire. I really want to have children. It's part of my heart. It's part of my desire. I'm going to sacrifice that on the altar of mission is what, what they said. Remember that phraseology, point blank. And one of the pastors, this is great, he turned right to this passage and said, you can't do that. You can't do that. If God has put a compulsion and a desire into you to be married and to have children, to have a family, to have a spouse, to glorify God that way, then, then you're not called to singleness. Like if that's a burning passion and a desire, then, then, then you're not called to singleness. Now, let me just qualify this again. I mean, so many things just need multiple qualifications, levels of qualification. That doesn't mean that if you're called to singleness, you'll never have that desire, okay? So I think that that's one thing that we kind of mess up in our minds. We have this idea that if you're called to be a single person, then that means you're never, ever, ever going to think about getting married. You're never, ever going to think about having a spouse. You're never going to think about having children. That's not true. I don't think that's true at all, right? So I, I, I firmly believe that a single person, a person who's called to singleness, to lifelong singleness, that they might have desires to get married at some point. They might have desires to have kids at some point. And it's probably going to be with them for their entire lives. But there's a difference between the burning desire within you, the absolute unbridled passion within you, and then a sometimes desire to get married, right? That would take, honestly, individual one-on-one -on -one counseling to be able to discern which is which. It's really hard to do so from up here in the pulpit. But I think that there's a distinction that's, that's to be made. So, here's the, now here's the little aside time that I want to go into. What if you are single right now? What if you are unmarried right now? And that's the season that God's called you into your life but you don't believe that he's called you into that life permanently. You believe that he has called you to marriage. You believe that there is supposed to be someone out there for you someday. You believe that you are supposed to have children and to glorify God through proclaiming the gospel in your marriage. Well, what's a few good principles that we can have in pursuing marriage and the gift of marriage from the state of singleness, right? I think there's at least four good principles. Number one, there are certain seasons in your life where you should not seek marriage, all right? If you just went through trauma, big, massive moves in your life, things that make you emotionally drained or vulnerable, um, perhaps a spouse just abandoned you for someone else, which would give you the license and the freedom to then get married again. The scriptures make it clear that if your spouse abandons you for someone else, that you then, then have the freedom to get married. But even if that's the case, my recommendation is don't rush into a relationship at that moment. At that moment, Don't do that. In those big traumatic moments of life, all you're going to do is hurt yourself and hurt the other person. You're just going to make yourself vulnerable to being torn apart and or, and or hurting the other person and tearing them apart as well. Because what we're doing in those moments is we're looking at marriage or a relationship as something to fill the, the pain, right? So we want to pursue marriage from a place of fullness, not a place of dependency, not a place of woundedness, right? If we pursue marriage from a place of emotional, spiritual woundedness, 
then that person that we're pursuing that marriage with, it's, it's going to be a disaster. It just is. Like, I don't even think I need to give examples about this because we've all experienced this in our lives and our families at one point or another. We want to pursue marriage from a place of fullness, like where we are emotionally stable, we are spiritually stable, we're whole in our relationship with Christ. In that way, we're not looking for the other person to fill the vacancy in our hearts. We're looking to give of ourselves in the fullness of ourselves to that other person. And hopefully they are too, right? That's, that's the hope. When you have two people who are full and their spiritual health, their emotional health, then what is it? Those two people are looking to serve one another, and that's the basis for marriage, not looking to take from one another. All right, so number two, also use your gift of singleness right here, right now. Don't use your time of singleness just to always be looking for a spouse. <laughs> I think sometimes we, we do this too much, right? And, and I got to be honest. Right? That's kind of what I did. I used, I used my time of singleness to always be looking for someone else. That was such a waste of time when I think about it. Like God gave me a wonderful season and a time for, of singleness to be able to do ministry, to go on mission trips, to give of my time feeding, clothing, caring for others. I mean, like there's a lot more freedom to be able to do these wonderful things from a place in a season of singleness. Use that. God has given you that time and that gift for a reason. And I mean, who knows? Perhaps even in using that satisfied gift of singleness, that's when you'll end up finding or discovering or God will bring that right person along. So uh, principle number three, get serious in your relationships. What I mean by this is if you believe that you're starting to have or develop romantic feelings between yourself and another person, be intentional about it. Don't play games. This whole little thing of like, you know, teasing and tempting and then running away and being hot and then cold and making the person pursue you and chase after you and all of that stuff. Or you being the person who's, you know, as the guy, so, so as the guy being like the type of guy who's like, oh, I'm not going to respond for like three days and see if she's going to be pining for me or whatever. Like, dude, wake up, grow up, be intentional in the relationship, stop playing games. Like Christians should never date just for the sake of dating. Satan loves when Christians do that. Because when Christians date just for the sake of dating, what are they ultimately saying? They're saying, I want all of the benefits of the physical intimacy, but none of the responsibility that comes with commitment. Right? And that's what we're saying if we just date for the sake of dating. Right? We're, we're just saying, like, I, I, just, I just want to be able to use this time in this relationship with this person to satisfy my desires without actually fully and totally investing and committing myself to that other person. Can you see how Satan can use that as an opportunity to bring about some terrible, terrible results? Absolutely. We should be dating. Christians should be dating in an intentional manner, discerning whether this other person is Christ-loving, whether they have potential to partner with you in kingdom building. Now, I'm not saying go out and buy a ring on your second date. But I am saying that like each date, each conversation, each email, each text message is an opportunity to study the other person, to study ourselves and search out if the two of us are compatible together to be in this life that God has. So this might sound controversial, but I really have this belief. If you aren't ready to commit to marriage, if God were to provide the right person, provide the, the, the complimentary person for you, then you shouldn't date. 
Let me just say that again. If you are not ready to commit to marriage, then ultimately I don't think you should date. Seriously. Which, that's why I don't believe in 14-year-olds dating. I don't believe in 15-year-olds dating. I don't believe in 16-year-olds dating. Why? Because they're not ready for marriage yet. They're not. Going out with groups, going out and developing, you know, that healthy relationship with people of the opposite sex under parental guidance and control, absolutely. All for that. 100%. But to just go out on like one-on-one -on -one dating, what, are you kidding me? You think I'm going to do that with my daughters? I'm going to send my daughters out with some 16-year-old boy who's just like jumping into his hormonal imbalance season while she's doing the same thing at the same time? Yeah, oh yeah, just go out. Go ahead. Yeah, fine, whatever. Like, I'm just sending my daughter to the wolves at that point, right? I'm not going to do that. And I'd be sending my son up for failure if I had a son. I'd be setting him up for failure because he doesn't know how to treat a woman, right? At the age of 16, no way. He's got to learn those things, right? So that's why I'm, I'm just... I don't, I, don't believe, I don't believe in Christian dating unless you are ready for marriage. I'm not, and again, I have to put the caveat. I'm not saying that the person that you start dating, you've got to be like, yep, absolutely, let's set the date right now. We're getting married. Right? I'm not saying that, but I am saying that if you are dating someone who you know you'll never marry, then stop dating them. Like, because why are you still in the relationship? Again, for the physical and intimacy benefits without the commitment. That's, that's why. And if we're being honest with ourselves, and Christians are not called to do that. All right, so number four, this is another controversial position, but here it is. Only pursue a romantic relationship with a believer. With a believer. I said it's controversial, but I don't know why it is. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, Paul says that when a wife's husband dies, then she's free to marry whomever she wishes, but then he puts a caveat, but only in the Lord. What's Paul say there? He's saying that if a wife ends up becoming single, because back then, right, sometimes you would have it so that a 40-year-old guy would marry a 16-year-old woman, right? Like, that happens sometimes, okay? And then sometimes she wouldn't conceive and have children or anything like that. So it's very possible that she could be a 20-year-old widow, still young, beautiful, ready to be married, all of that, right? And Paul was saying that if that were to happen, she's free to marry whomever she wants as long as it's in, as it's in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.14, we all know this passage says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now Paul is talking here about Christians in general being careful what type of activities they're involved in in a general sense. Like he's telling us, be careful what we go out and do, right? He's essentially saying there, like, right, I, I, don't, I don't have the liberty to, to go out to an animal sacrifice feast, during the Christmas Eve. If, someone, if, if one of my neighbors is practicing the winter solstice, I don't get to go out and just be like, ah, they're my neighbor, so I'm just going to go hang out with them while they sacrifice a cow to Odin, right? I don't get to do that, right? Same with, like, I, I don't have the freedom or the opportunity or the liberty to be like, yeah, my buddies, they're going to a strip club. I'm going to go there as a holy light. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to a strip club as a holy light. I'm going to try to convert people. That's what I'm going to Like, no. So Paul is saying that there. Like, I'm not able to do that as just a Christian, then how much more so do we need to apply this to our marriage relationship? Really, if we're supposed to apply this passage to our friend relationships, to our neighbor relationships, to our coworker relationships, then how much more so in our marriage relationship? I always find it funny when people are like, you know, that's not about marriage, right? I go, yeah, I know it's not about marriage. It's about your general relationship. So how much more so for marriage then? If we're not to be unequally yoked in the world, then how can we unequally yoke ourselves in our 
marriages. And here's the reason why it's so important. This is so important because if you are a follower of Christ, what does that mean? That means Christ is central in your lives, right? That means Christ is the most important person in your life. And His kingdom is the most important thing in your life. And eternity is your ultimate mindset, right? And so if Christ is at the center of your life, but the person that you're yoking yourself to, that you're bonding with for the rest of your life, doesn't have that, don't you think you're just setting it up for failure? We're absolutely setting ourselves up for failure. We're setting them up for failure. We're just setting the whole marriage and everything up for failure. And the reason why is this, because as, as a Christ follower, what does that mean? It means that when I watch a movie, right? We just got Disney Plus, and I started watching The Mandalorian. It's so good, by the way. It's really good. It's like the best Star Wars product that's been made in a while. Mandalorian's fantastic, all right? But as I watch movies and as I watch shows, I watch them with a Christian worldview, right? I'm starting to see like redemptive plots and narratives. I'm starting to see like the person who's, who's being led away by darkness and into sin and despondency. I'm seeing the person who has guilt that's like weighed upon them and is, or, or is trying to fix that guilt in their own. And I'm saying like they need, they need the love of Jesus in that moment. Like everything that I'm seeing, everything that I'm watching, everything that I'm doing is supposed to be viewed through the lens of Jesus Christ. But if I marry someone who's not doing that, we're never going to have anything in common. We're never going to have anything in common. I mean, we might like the same thing, but not in the same way. Does that make sense? Right? We both might like football. We both might like doing arts and crafts. We both might like music or something like that. But we're going to look at all of those different activities through a different lens. And so we're never going to come to agreement on really anything, anything that matters. I mean, a big one's going to be money. Right? A big one is money and time. Because as a Christian, we believe that our money and our time is used for the proclamation of the kingdom of God. It's given towards missions. It's given towards generous, you know, uh, just generous ministries. The ministry of the church and stuff like that. But if you don't have that same mindset as an unbeliever, you're not going to have that same thinking. Can you just see how you're laying the groundwork for destruction? So that's why. You know, I'm, and I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not saying like don't build a relationship with anyone who's a non-believer. Just don't. Don't pursue a marriage relationship with someone who's a non-believer. Um, that, is, that is like the first and most important thing. Everything else comes secondary. What type of food you like, what type of clothes you wear, type of, you know, whether you're a Red Sox or Yankees fan, that's right. They can be a Yankees fan, and you can marry them as long as they love Christ. They can be. They can be a Montreal Canadiens fan. That's right, I said it, a Canadiens fan. That, that's right, I said it. They can be a Peyton Manning fan. They might, even, they might even say that Peyton Manning is better than Tom Brady, right? They come to that unpopular decision, but you know what? If we know they love Christ, then we know that they're eventually going to repent of those views. So. <laughs> so, now, here's the other question that comes up at this point. What happens if I marry someone and then I become a believer? Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that we shall remain in that marriage. He doesn't say it's going to be easy. He never gives this indication that it's going to be something that's a simple road to walk, right? But he does say that essentially you're a missionary to your spouse at that point. You're, you're a missionary. 
That's what you are. You are a missionary of Christ to your spouse if you become a believer after getting married. And I believe me, I, that is a hard thing. I have many friends. I have a friend who has this strong desire to be a pastor. He became a believer soon after becoming married to his wife, and she still is not a believer. And it is something that weighs on his heart. I've known him for eight years now, something like that. It just weighs heavy on his heart with everything that he wants to do because he knows that she's not there and supporting him and loving him in those ways. But he's not abandoning that relationship. He's still using everything that he does for Christ as a way to be a missionary to her. And we're constantly praying for her to come to know Christ. And, and so that's, that's what we do in those situations. Okay, so now I want to get to the last point of singleness. Last point of singleness. I, I hope this has been a, a helpful series that balance, or a helpful f- conclusion to our series that helps balance out some of the things we've talked about for five weeks. Because I know, look, look, I know that, talking about this again with a, another friend the other day, like, I know that it's, it's often hard to come into like, a, oh, marriage and parenting series. And I'm neither. <laughs> you know? Like, I understand how hard that is. And I understand how difficult that is. And even though I think it's really important still to do series like that, because the Bible explicitly talks about marriage and parenting plenty of times, it is important to realize that it's not the end-all, be-all of our relationship with Christ. It's not even the most supreme thing. And actually, we get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29-35. through 35. Let me read this. It's very self-explanatory. I love what Paul says here. He says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Do you notice the way that Paul is arguing there? Essentially, this boils down to even if you're married, with all of the wonderful high things that Jesus and Paul says about marriage, even if you're married, it's good to have a single-minded devotion to the Lord. It's good to have a single-minded devotion to the Lord, even if we're married. Is Paul saying abandon our spouses there? No, absolutely not. Is Paul saying to neglect caring for our spouses and our children and stuff like that? No, absolutely not. But I do think what Paul is saying here is when we are in a marriage relationship and when we're in a parenting relationship, we can become distracted from the primary things in life. And the primary things are the things that bring honor and glory and proclamation of the kingdom of God. See, it's so much easier, if you will, to become distracted by doing things that please the spouse by helping out with the chores and you know, making sure the kids have a good education, make sure that we have proper clothes on our back and the house is fully maintained and all of these things. And notice, all of those things are good. They really are. But we can end up, I think Paul is getting to this point here, we can end up putting too much focus and attention on those things. So it becomes not just about providing for our spouse, but about making everything about them. 
And so rather than just thinking like, I need to provide for my wife's emotional and spiritual needs. I need to provide for her physical needs. I sit there and I think in my mind or I, I consider like, okay, I need to make sure that she gets the absolute best vacation possible, that she gets the best time away possible. I'm going to clothe her with the absolute best clothes that money can buy. And so that means I'm going to have to focus all of my effort and all of my attention in making as much money as I can so I can do those things for her. Same thing with the kids. We talked about this last week when it was about parenting, right? We can oftentimes, educating our kids are very, is very important. Providing for our kids is absolutely necessary. But if we start to think that making, making sure our kids are little baby genius Einsteins is the most important thing to the neglect of their soul, and so we're teaching them mathematics and English for 24 hours a day, but we don't ever teach them the word of God because that would get in the way of their math, that would get in the way of their educational goals, that would get in the way of their career aspirations, then we have become too divided in our devotion. And so having a single-minded devotion says that, yes, I'm going to provide for my wife. Yes, as a wife, I'm going to support my husband. And I'm going to put focus and emphasis on them. Yes, as a parent, I am going to pour into my children. I'm going to make sure they're educated. I'm going to make sure they're clothed. I'm going to make sure they're fed. All of those wonderful things. I'm going to make sure that we have some time to get away as a family for a little trip every once in a while, to be able to, to escape from the daily pressures of life. But what I will not do is focus on all of that to the neglect of this. I'm not going to focus on all... And, and what Paul is saying here is that a single person... This is why it's a gift to be single. It's a gift to be single because he's saying that there's less distractions to keep you from doing that. That's awesome. He's saying as a single person, whether you're single because you've been single for a long time, you're single because you've gone through the trauma of divorce, you're single because you've gone through the trauma of uh, widowing or widowhood, it's a blessing at this season in your life. It's a blessing at this time in your life. Use it. Use it well for the glory of His kingdom, for single-minded devotion and married men and women, parents, grandparents, Let's learn from the freedom that our single brothers and sisters have. Let's learn from the gift that they have so that we can make sure that we're focused on the right things in our own families' lives and in our own lives. Let's go back and draw back to these passages. And remember, this is what he says, because the current form of this world is passing away. So that makes you think of what Jesus says, right? Why store up for yourself treasures upon earth? But store up for yourselves instead treasures in heaven where the moth and the rust don't destroy or devour. We have a calling, whether married or single, to have a single-minded devotion to the Lord. Um, just one last quick thing as we, we uh, close up the series and move on to Advent. If you notice, that, like, what's at the center of all of it it's really simple. It's, it's the kindergarten answer, right? It's Christ. Christ is at the center of all of this. Christ is at the center of your gift of singleness. Christ is at the center of your gift of marriage. Christ is at the center of your gift of parenting. Christ is at the center of your gift of, if you want to go into life stages of working or schooling or retirement or semi-retirement or whatever it might be, right? Christ is at the center of any relationship that you have right now. That's 
That's the goal. That's the mindset. And, and look, it is so easy. This is why I, I love that song, Christ the Shore and Steady Anchor. Because it's so easy for the anchor to become adrift. Not because he's coming adrift, but because we are having him drift off in our lives. Because we end up turning our gaze and focusing on other things. Because we can end up being so concerned with earthly horizontal relationships or earthly horizontal things that just consume our minds and consume all of our attention and devotion. And so my, my final prayer for us, my final hope for us as we wrap up this series on the family and gospel-centered family is really be examining daily, is Christ in the center? Is he? Is Christ at the center? Or are you in the center? Or is someone else in the center? Or is something else in the center? Don't be afraid of asking that question. Because the moment we stop asking that question, this is the moment that Christ begins to drift. That's the moment that our gaze ends up coming off of him. Is Christ at the center? And this Advent season is a perfect time to remind ourselves of why Christ is in the center. It's because he came down. Because his grace was poured out because his love was poured out, because he emptied himself into the form of a humble, lowly servant. And so we get to start celebrating that this week. That's right. Christmas, Advent, celebrations get to begin this week. Isn't that awesome? We get to celebrate the candle of hope next week. And for the next four weeks, up until that beautiful day of December 25th, we get to remind ourselves why is it that Christ is in the center? Because he's placed himself at the center. Because he came down. Because his grace is enough. Because his mercy is great. So, I just wanted to leave us with that final uh, wonderful little promise. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the gifts of family. The gift of marriage. The gift of parenting. The gift of singleness. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your church where all of this comes together. Where husbands and wives join to other husbands and wives and join to single men and women and we all become one family, one brotherhood, one unity. Lord, it is a, a wonderful and beautiful thing that we get to enter into this world that you have for us, enter into the lives that you have for us, and to be able to live with our different gifted callings. For one, it's marriage. For another, it's singleness. For one, it's widowing or widowhood. For another, it's being married until the day they die at 98. For one, it's to have a dozen children. For another, it's to, to struggle with infertility. And yet all of these things are gifts. All of these things are wonderful, gracious, good things because you... Lord, you redeem all of them. You use all of them. And you use them all for the greater glory of your kingdom. And Lord, if we enter into the different relationships and stages and callings of our lives with that focus on you, the focus on Christ, then we'll be able to see that. We'll be able to know that. We'll be able to find contentment in that. So Lord, I pray that everyone here, married and single, separated, divorced, widowed, with child, without child. I pray that they would all see the wonderful gifts that you have given to them, the wonderful callings you're calling them to, and the wonderful kingdom that you're calling to use those gifts for. We pray this in your heavenly and glorious name. Amen.